0: Welcome to the Plans and Provisions Podcast, your source for homesteading and preparedness information and inspiration. We're so glad you're here. We'll be talking with some incredible folks, sharing ideas, and learning what we can do to become more independent and resilient in these interesting times. Now, here's your host, Jason White.
1: Food is at the heart of every life, every home, and every community but sadly that fact has slowly been forgotten over many decades of progress of the centralized and industrialized food systems in America. Replaced by processed, adulterated, and factory-farmed foods, many of the traditions of the American food culture have not only been forgotten, but in many cases outright shunned. Well, today I welcome back Judson Carroll, a true American omnivore who not only has a passion for eating and cooking a variety of foods, but has shared that knowledge and passion with the world through his recent book, The Omnivore's Guide to Home Cooking for Preppers, Homesteaders, Permaculture People, and Everyone Else. In our conversation, Judson shares some personal stories about how he learned to cook and why he values a varied seasonal diet. We get into some obscure food options for those looking to raise their own protein, as well as some great entry-level small game for hunting that might surprise you. We talk a little food history and culture, and Judson shares some personal recipes that I think you'll find interesting. I hope you'll enjoy. Hey, Judson, welcome back to the podcast. Good to, good to see you again.
0: Hey, Jason, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's been a little while. You were actually the first, the first interview that I uh, published on this show, and I got a lot of really really interesting and positive feedback from that, um, from that conversation. One of the things that really stood out that I heard from probably most people that had something to say was uh, what you had to say about medicinal trees. That kind of seemed to shock a lot of people and, and took them off guard and was, was kind of, kind of a cool thing.
0: Oh, great. Okay. it's uh, you know, it's always good to hear because uh, like when I released my book on the trees, um, I think for a solid year, it didn't sell a single copy. I mean, it literally just sat there. Nobody had any interest in it uh, whatsoever. And so I started sending out like some weekly articles or excerpts from the book. And it, people have really been shocked. I mean, herbalists, professional herbalists that did not know the medicinal uh, uses of trees. And I think it's, it's great for anybody that can just say, Hey, there's something in my yard that's useful. You know, I don't have to go out and buy it. I don't have to go out and plant it. It's already there. It was there before, you know, the house was built. And uh, I think that, uh, in fact, my newest book is actually on ferns. Um, uh, That's not the book we're going to talk about today, but um, yeah, I'm, I've got a broken ankle, so I've had a lot of time on my hands, and I've finished up a book, early. <laughs> and it's on the medicinal uses of ferns. And there's actually not a single uh, book in print written about the medicinal uses of ferns. The most ancient plant, li- literally the first vascular plant on Earth, you know, that predates the dinosaurs. That all our oil is made from, you know, fern and what they call the fern allies, like the horsetail and such as that club moss. And um, Hmm. you, if you like the book on trees, let me tell you the book on ferns is not only um, you'll be surprised by the medical uses of them, but the folklore, the legends. I mean, every culture on earth that uh, like pre-Christian culture thought that ferns had like these magical qualities and could do all kinds of crazy stuff. There's actually a a a legend that was really popular. It shows up in several countries that. We're not necessarily communicating, so I don't really know what it was all about. A fern that would grow tiny little sheep, like with wool and everything. And they, yeah, seriously, people literally believe this. And the it, the book that was really popular in England, where this, uh, yeah, he was a soldier, he traveled a lot. He brought this legend back from, um, oh, where did he say? Uh, the Tartars, the region of. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the country. Anyway, somewhere in the middle East, he brought brings this legend back. That book was literally regarded as a uh, true. It was actually used by Christopher Columbus to help him chart his routes in, in his uh, sailing and discovery of America. So it, it's, Ferns are ferns are crazy. <laughs> it's just great. I mean, uh, the, wow. I had as much fun writing that one as any book I've ever written because of all these just incredible legends. I mean, even in Shakespeare's time, people believed that certain ferns, if you collected the spores at a certain full moon, would make you invisible, or that um, <laughs> it would another fern would call, cause horses to throw their shoes or even pick locks. Yeah, it's just, it was fun, but and the mythology wow. is very good as well. There, ferns are really. They can be liver tonic. They can help get rid of intestinal worms. They're good for fevers. They're good for one of the most interesting things. I know I'm getting way off topic here, but I think your readers no, really, great. I mean, your listeners <laughs> be really interested in this. Ferns have a quality that's been proven, but we don't know why they have this quality. Like modern science has not been able to figure it out. If you take uh, fresh in the field or dried ferns and put them uh, like in your socks or make a little pillow of them, it will help with nerve pain and cramps in the feet and, and the calves and um like even sciatic pain. Nobody knows why. And that's literally just a topical uh application of even a dried fern. And that's any fern. I mean that's not even one specific variety.
1: That's all all the fern. Now, do you find that that pretty much all ferns have fairly similar? Medicinal uses, or does it get pretty specific to the different No, yeah, they're different pretty
0: specific. Uh, a lot of them have uh, what we would call vermicidal properties. They help get rid of intestinal worms and parasites. And I think that's the one commonality across the ferns. Okay. And, and, and what I said wow. about uh, helping with nerve pain and uh, spasmodic muscle pain. So those two things are similar, mm-hmm. but then um, all, they're very different in, in their properties from one species to another. And, uh, some of them are good food too, like ostrich ferns, which grow really, uh, abundantly where All I right. live make wonderful fiddlehead ferns they are delicious.
1: Yeah, no, I spent, I spent a year or so, uh, many years ago in Vermont up in the green mountains up there. And there were yeah. a lot of fiddlehead picking going on in the spring there. And as that yeah. fiddleheads are specific just to ostrich ferns, correct?
0: You know, they used to be, um, essentially just bracken fern and, um, bracken has recently been shown to be, um potentially carcinogenic. So now uh, we just mm. eat the ostrich fern. And there, there are maybe four or five other varieties that are safe to eat. Uh, and honestly, I don't think bracken is probably that bad for you considering people ate it for hundreds of years and didn't have trouble. But, um, you know, we're right. exposed to so many carcinogens in our environment now that we can't really take risks as uh, maybe our ancestors did.
1: That's a good point that could send us back into the, the Comfrey conversation as well. Now in the, in the book that, um, it kind of caught my eye and, and man, you're pro- prolific. Uh, we, we talked in, in March, February or March. And I, I, I've had a hard time keeping up with, with the amount of books you put out. I saw the tree book. It's definitely something that I'm um, interested in, uh, haven't picked it up. So I'm guilty of that. But this, this omnivore's guide to home cooking, um, Do you have anything about fiddleheads in there? I didn't notice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned fiddleheads under the, uh, foraging under the wild foods section. You know, uh, really this is the omnivores guide to home cooking is my favorite book I've written so far. It was the most fun. Um, you know, herbal medicine is what I do for a living and it's a passion of mine, but food is what gets me excited. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, but I I had to kind of When I put the book together, I didn't want to go all wild foods because that would turn most people off. Most people don't eat a lot of wild foods, whether it's game, fish or just vegetation. You know, Um, I I did a mix of what you might be able to source from your environment and what you might be able to buy from the grocery store or grow in the garden or get from a local farmer. That was sort of the challenge of the book. And the other challenge of the book was, um, I, I, as you know, I did not want to give specific recipes. I wanted to teach people kind of how to cook, not... I mean, a recipe is just like a snapshot. It's just like a picture in time. It's, you know, even the greatest chef, it's what he has in his kitchen right that minute. And the amounts are going to depend on how many pe- uh, people he's cooking for. Uh, so really, when you open a, a cookbook and you see the specific recipe, you know, two cups of this and a tablespoon of that, it's, it's not really practical because, you know... Part of cooking is learning to cook and con- constantly making substitutions and scaling a recipe up or scaling a recipe down. So that was that was a big point I wanted to get across in the book was that I'm not I don't want you to cook like me. I want you to cook like you. And here are the techniques and here are the fundamentals and the basics and some ideas of combining flavors. And I, for most of I'm, I do give recipes, but I don't give specific proportions and specific measurements and um i usually say you can substitute you know if you don't have chicken you can use this if you don't have broccoli you can use you know and if you don't have this herb you can use that herb that kind of thing
1: yeah i think i think that for for the average american who's used to that that recipe book with pictures and bullet points and you know that kind of um it it doesn't require a whole lot of attention span you can flip to what you're looking for uh, this book will be will be a little bit different and maybe a challenge right. but i think as i started to read through it there's so much valuable information and i like that you like you said you know most people don't eat wild foods and 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 i think there's a lot of reasons for that over the years and i think people like myself and many others say in the homestead movement are trying to move back to being able to get more Uh, engaged with you know self-produced local produced wild foods and things like that but you even touch on things like broccoli carrots Mm -hmm. cabbage i mean things that are very common and i think there's still some really good um really interesting tidbits and ideas that that i had never thought of and i'm i'm a cook i mean i cook from home i've worked in the culinary industry um you know i've I love to cook, so I definitely love this book. One of the things early in the book, you kind of talk about some background, um, your background, and how you kind of came to have a, um, have access to these, some of these culinary traditions. And one of the stories I found really interesting was how you actually learned to cook from your grandmother. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, that was that was a. Um... That was a really interesting experience, you know. I was um, I was in uh, I was in college and I was studying economics and uh, working a lot in the food industry. All, all my friends were either musicians or cooks, you know, and bartenders. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know that crowd. We're, we're out like you know three oh, a.m. Yeah. when everything's closed, and we're just coming up with crazy ideas and probably drinking a little too much. And uh, you know, that's the yep. of life, you know. And suddenly um, my uncle had a stroke and my grandmother had a heart attack, like back to back. The uncle had been running the farm and uh, I had to go take care of the farm. I had to, you know, just leave my life and walk away from it. And he died. And my uh, grandmother lived for um, a couple more years after her heart attack. But uh, she was basically confined to a chair. You know, she could take a few steps, but she'd have to get in a wheelchair the farm had, was a generations you know old farm It had been a, my grandfather was really into what was would be permaculture before permaculture had a name. you know we had everything self-sufficient sourced from the, the farm and by the time I got there, <laughs> most of the commercial farming was done. Uh, people would come in and kind of rent the fields from us and maybe grow a crop of soybeans or something and so I didn't really have to worry about that too much had to take care of the livestock, had to take care of the gardens around the house and, you know, all kinds of such as, as that. But my grandmother had been used to cooking for a family of five, plus all the farmhands and any um, any visitors that would just show up. I mean, the place was almost like a community center. There would be a knock on the door in the middle of the night. Someone would have a problem and my grandparents would help them out. It could be a man who had lost his job or needed a loan or a woman whose husband was beating her or whatever. Somebody was sick. I mean, they just showed up. And so my grandmother always made tons of food. There was always extra food on the stove in case somebody showed up. Um, but, so by the time I get there, and it's just the three of us, my grandmother, my mother, and me, and a, a couple of aunts that would kind of cycle in and out every now and then, the freezers were full of food. The pantry was full of food. We had so much food. It was a challenge to keep it from spoiling. And so you can imagine for me, it's like, wow, <laughs> you know, I now have like every ingredient I've ever wanted to have right at my fingertips and uh, I could get creative. Right. Well, the other thing is my grandmother was a phenomenal cook. Uh, she was known to be the best cook in the community. And so it was her, uh, well, actually her, yeah, her uh, grandmother. Yeah. She was so good <laughs> that people, strangers would look for her name in our family name in the newspaper, and if there was a funeral or a wedding or a family reunion, they just show up and pretend to be <laughs> <just> like, <laughs> Geneva's cooking, we gotta be there, you know. <laughs> and, you know we had uh, relatives that had barbecue joints, I mean, we had one of them had a whole chain of barbecue restaurants, so the family was known for cooking uh, a lot of French heritage. And uh, so, when I'm there and I'm in my early 20s, and She'd get hungry. She didn't want anything but her own home cooking, but she couldn't get up and cook anymore. And uh, I just asked her what she wanted. And she usually would say, you know, whatever, a little bit of this or that. But I'd tell her what was, you know, in the freezer and need to be used. And she'd just walk me through and she'd sit there and she would never tell me at what temperature to cook something. She would never tell me how long to cook something, just like in my book. <laughs> you know, she did not give Proportions. She'd say, add a pinch of this, add a pinch of that, taste it, and see. She was always taste it constantly as you go through it. Feel it with your hands. Cook it till it's done. You know, that was that was the way we did things. So she'd just sit there in her wheelchair, and when it was my turn to cook, she'd walk me through how to make her recipes, and uh, it was great. It was a mix of, you know, traditional Southern country cooking and a lot of French cooking, and um Kind of similar to Cajun or Creole, but maybe a little less spicy. I like things spicy, but, you know, she didn't like things quite that spicy. Which is odd because my great-grandmother loved hot peppers. She was a pepper head and a half. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Wow, she that's a pretty cool. Uh... Yeah, her favorite joke was we, we had fields, big fields, right? And we'd be out like a mile from the house and any water. And she'd grab a pepper and say, here, eat this. And be like, "Is it hot, Granny?" And she like, "No, no, it's a sweet pepper. Eat this." And it would be like, you know, a blazing hot pepper. I mean, she had heirloom peppers before it was a thing. Really, I mean, um, nobody really in in North Carolina was eating hot peppers in in the early 1900s. But my family was, and growing celery as well. Celery was not a thing, but uh, she had um, these wonderful banana peppers. Which are sort of like a Hungarian wax, um, maybe like a Cubanelle, you know, like we would think of Mm -hmm. it now. But we just call them all banana peppers back then, anything that was kind of yellow and and, in that shape. And they could, just like a poblano, one would be sweet like a bell pepper. And the next one would just burn you like, (laughs) I mean, like a habanero. I mean, (laughs) I don't even know what the scooby units were on those things.
1: So you never know what you're gonna get with those. Yeah, I I love hot peppers myself. We 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 tried this year to grow a fair amount and it didn't work out. We we have pretty good reasons why. Our tomatoes did really well. We did great with squash and cucumbers and um it's our first real serious year of gardening. But the pepper thing, um, I I love hot stuff. I've gotten mm-hmm. into fermenting. I really want to start uh, and I am fermenting some peppers right now. Some that I grew some cayennes and things like that, but not nearly as many as, you know, I need to keep up with the need for hot sauce and hot relishes yeah. around this, this house. Me and my wife just love it. I put it on just about everything. Um, yeah, me too. yeah. That's yeah, one thing totally. I really want to get, get up is that pepper game next year.
0: Yeah. And then of course, you know, you can dry them so easily and you can have them through the year and, uh, it, really, the old uh, cookbooks, the early American cookbooks, didn't even use black pepper. Um, they were all uh, dried cayenne pepper. So, like, even, mm-hmm. like, the Virginia Housewife, which would uh, was written by, um, was it Thomas Jefferson's sister-in-law, I think? Or, I think that's right. Uh, so, that's how old that one is. Cayenne pepper, not black. Uh, so, it really... Now we associate cayenne more with Louisiana food, but even in the British colonies up in Virginia and Massachusetts and all that, they only had cayenne. That was it.
1: Well, they could grow it, and they yeah. didn't have to import it. So, I mean, it exactly. makes sense to me. Um, so in this book, there's some really surprising, some just surprising ingredients that you talk about. A lot of them being uh you know wild game one in particular that that i found really really intriguing and had never occurred to me you were talking about roe and caviar and and you mentioned i believe you mentioned raising snails for yeah. their eggs yeah uh, yeah i I've done that talk time. a little bit about that
0: yeah uh, you've okay, done it before so, like
1: was that You've done it before. You've raised yeah. It.
0: Yeah, I've done it a couple of times. Um, I would usually keep a snail colony going um, until usually I have to move or go somewhere out of town for a while. And snails, keeping snails is almost like keeping chickens. They need clean food. They need clean water. They have certain temperature requirements. But snails, it's amazing that they uh, they're not native to North America. You know, they were brought here by. Uh, european settlers for food it was the smallest livestock they carry with them snails go dormant in the winter so you can literally just take a big old handful of snails put them in a bag and just keep them cool and dry and they won't come back to life so that was the easiest thing to bring over on a ship because the they hit ground all they had to do was give them a little water and set out some uh vegetation for them and they were fine and they're hermaphroditic so they start breeding immediately they each snail will lay like a thousand eggs i mean But it's actually amazing that they have survived as a a pest here in America because they are so sensitive. Snails, uh, if they have food that's beginning to rot, I mean, even just a little bit, they get sick and die. They're prone to um, slugs prey on them. It's actually a slug's favorite food is to eat a snail. And, of course, birds and raccoons and everything just love snails. But... You know, they're just a a shellfish that adapted to living on land. They're no different than mussels or clams. Uh, Yeah, they have that snail slime. But you get rid of the snail slime just by popping them in some solid boiling water. It goes away immediately. And then you have uh, a little critter that is basically a clam. And you can pull it out of the shell and saute it. You can throw them in um, a pot and make a soup. Uh, Just like clams, they will get really tough, you know, if they're overcooked. But then if you slow cook them over a long period of time, those proteins start to relax and loosen back up as they break down. So you kind of have a fast cooking option and a slow cooking option. And, yeah, it's super easy. All you got to do, in fact, this is the time of year to get started snail farming. Go outside and uh, pick up a couple of rocks. uh, Look around, usually like a water meter. They like to get around there. Anything kind of where they got a little cover. They're going to be down there, and they're going to be dormant. Go ahead and pick up a couple of them. Bring them in. Just stick them somewhere where you know they they are. And uh, as soon as the last frost, put them in uh, basically a terrarium. You know, basically just take any kind of container. Uh, They will eat through paper, cardboard, or wood, though. So don't use anything like that. Use plastic or glass. And uh, put uh, some gravel in the bottom, a little soil, and then moss is really good to put over the top. Sit them in a little water dish. You can use like a mayonnaise jar lid for a water dish. And really what is great is if you plant radishes and um, uh, chives, shallots, anything like an onion, uh, you will have far fewer disease problems because those are anti- actually antibiotics for snails. So uh, in, in uh, ancient Greece, where they first started farming snails, it's called heliculture or heliculture, something like that, thousands of years ago. They would have these big, uh, round stone, um, basically basins, right? And in there, they would just grow radishes and uh, chives and such. And they would put a copper rim around the edge because snails won't cross copper. it uh, They have sort of an electrical reaction to copper. So you can get started with two snails. And um, within a couple of months, within about a month in the spring, they're going to start laying eggs. And you're going to have a couple hundred snails. Or you can take those eggs and you can spray them down a little salt water and you have snail caviar, which is really um, remarkably good. It actually tastes uh, like a combination between um, like maybe a trout caviar, you know, trout roe and mushrooms. It has a very earthy mushroom type taste. And uh no one's going to know if, if you serve them that, that you, this is snail caviar. They're going to be like, wow, this is really good. I mean, you put that on a little canapé or something and you know, a little blini, you know, with a little sour cream and people will go crazy over it or just uh, pop it in an omelet. That's a really good way to eat it.
1: Wow. Yeah, that was new. I, I've had escargot. I worked in a French restaurant many years ago and, and, and had escargot. I've not had it since. But yeah, it was like a... Tasted like clams that had that yeah. similar texture, had that that flavor. I thought it was good. Um, it's just it's not something that's super common. I kind of went for one of the most obscure and unusual items at the beginning for the shock factor. Because I know that people listening are like, he's talking about eating snails. He's talking about <laughs> eating snail eggs. This is getting weird quick. But I, I, I think I, I wanted to bring that up and just to kind of touch on the subject of you know, what has happened in in this culture that a lot of our food traditions that gone back back to the old world, um, came from the old world. Like you said, they, they were they were raising snails in Greece thousands of years ago. Um, obviously, you know, escargot is a commonality in French cooking. Um, you know, what's happened and I have got my own theories, but I'm curious what your take is on like what, what has happened to the American food culture, and why are we so disconnected from these traditions that in, in a lot of ways you you really, I feel like, are conserving and projecting in this book?
0: Yeah, I, in fact, I think that's probably the main. Well, I had two real goals in this book, and uh, well, we'll say three. I had three main goals. But bringing back those food traditions, um, fostering a love of cooking, because it really is, it's creative, it's fun. I mean, I would actually rather cook than eat. And I love to eat. I mean, it's just fun to cook if you got uh, if you learn the the techniques, if you got the skills. Well, I think one of the main reasons people don't like to cook is because they don't have those basic skills. If you don't know how to hold a knife, you're going to have a tired hand and probably cut yourself. If you don't have a sharp knife, you're going to definitely really have a hard time. And so many people, you know, cut with a cutting board. They want to cut, you know, with a pair everything with a paring knife. And that's just tiring. It takes time. If you get those skills down, you're like, boom. And you can hang out in the kitchen. You can be with your friends and family. You can talk. You can have a glass of wine or a beer. You know, just enjoy the whole process. And the other thing is the family table. I mean, obviously, uh, the sacrificial meal is the main tenet of nearly every religion on earth. People used to appreciate a meal as a gift from God and a, uh, a time to come together and talk with your family and really build those bonds and those strong relationships. The further we move away from that family table, the more our families are falling apart and being fractured and in uh, and communities. Uh, and, I mean, we used to have I mean, um, growing up in North Carolina, uh, at the old country churches uh, it was like a potluck you know every uh sunday it was called supper on the ground you go to church and you'd have supper on the ground everybody bring food and share food and that's where uh friendships were made that's where people met and dated and you know it just perpetuated family and connections and community and involvement and I, I, you know it all revolves around food and I, I mean food is such an important thing it's it's, it's Far too often taken for granted. But to get to your question, you know, I have a, uh, a great cookbook uh, from 1940. It's called The Culinary Cyclopedia uh, from 1940. And you, you can grab a copy off of, you know, eBay or Amazon for maybe five bucks. Great to have on your bookshelf. It's an encyclopedic cookbook. In 1940, you could expect to go to the grocery store and find almost 100 varieties of apples. Literally in this book. It gives you a description of 100 varieties of apples, which ones are good for eating out of hand, which ones are good for making applesauce, which ones are good for making pies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We go to the grocery store today, and I'm lucky if I can find four, four varieties of apple. We got, what, Macintosh, Golden Delicious, Red Delicious, maybe a Gala, Gala, whatever. That's about it. That's all I'm going to find. Oh, well, Granny Smith. We'll throw in a Granny Smith. So five varieties of apples. You know, um, my great-grandparents um, all lived to be uh, almost 100. I had one, uh, let's see, great-grandma was 94, uh, great-grandfather was 96, great-grandfather 101. His wife uh, probably died early due to medical error. Uh, seems that um, sis run her family, and they probably mistook it for cancer, and uh, she died from complications of surgery. He remarried. Um, a younger woman, and uh, so literally <laughs> had natural causes taken their course. All my ancestors would have lived to be about a hundred years, only two generations ago. I don't credit that to anything except the variety of foods they ate. They had a huge variety of uh, vegetables coming out of the garden, fresh, organic, you know, vegetables because chemical fertilizers uh, really hadn't come into play yet. They lay, raised their own uh, livestock. Uh, my French great-grandfather was a master of curing hams and making sausages, and he also kept bees and such. Uh, they, so we always had honey, and this honey, oh, it was so good. <laughs> right there the swamps, we uh, <laughs> were full of sweet gum trees. And you've heard of Tupelo honey? That's what it was. It was mm-hmm. almost black as molasses and it would burn the back of your throat when you had a spoonful of it just raw and it was just delicious Uh, you know great grandmother was making biscuits with the lard from the hogs that were just right out the back door you know and uh, the only thing they actually bought was sugar and wheat and they would actually take corn into the meal and trade it for wheat so they didn't really have to spend a lot of money but that variety of foods and all the fish and game all the wild foods that we don't have in our diets now, if you go to the grocery store now, (laughs) uh, most foods are pasteurized or irradiated, or processed. They're very far from their natural state. And of course, not only are we eating pasteurized foods, we're taking a lot of antibiotics, which totally screws up our gut health. That's half your immune system. In fact, most cases of dementia and Alzheimer's seem to be related to gut health. So you know, my great grandparents were making sauerkraut and they were fermenting pickles and they were, you know, they had access to, frankly, a much wider variety of more nutritious food than we do now, even though we kind of think of ourselves as living in a golden age because we have um, more ethnic food. And of course, I love to eat the foods of all different cultures. But, you know, there's a big difference between going to an American grocery store and going to a Mexican grocery store. You go to a little Tienda, that produce is meant to come in that day and be sold that day because these folks don't usually don't have refrigerators at home. That meat is butchered in house and uh, they're eating a lot of goat and, you know, meats that we don't have on the American table very often. And there's not being treated with the chemicals like, uh, I don't know, sometimes you go to the American grocery store and you get some beef and you open it up and it's kind of like this really weird smell. Well, that's that carbon Mm -hmm. gas they've inserted into the package to make it look redder and to keep it from spoiling a little bit longer. You don't get that in a Mexican grocery store. And, you know, of course, I wish they were all coming here legally. And I have huge issues with the uh, political system in terms of illegal immigration, human trafficking and all that. But honestly, I would rather shop at a Mexican Tienda than I would... uh, a big fancy American grocery store because you get fresher produce and better meats and um, better quality and it's cheaper, you know? And
1: uh, yeah,
0: well, a lot of times <laughs> the owners may do, be doing a little illegal cooking in the back too, because they're not inspected as often. So, uh, you know, I can go in and I can get my basket of uh, food and a few tamales for a few dollars and uh, made by an right. actual grandmother with a, you know, a steamer pot going back there. That's that's good eats.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think of the, the, the Asian supermarkets, which I, I love to cook a variety of ethnic foods. And um man, some of the ingredients that you can find in there, it's just incredible compared to yeah. you know, what you're gonna find at the at the the, the mainline American grocery store.
0: Yeah, um, and they have this great uh chips made from shrimp the, the shrimp puff chips have you ever tried those mm-hmm. those are
1: tasty yeah. <laughs> they are good yep they are good um so you, you kind of hit on the 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 concept of omnivore when I, mean, I think when most people think of the definition of omnivore it's it's not an herbivore it's not a carnivore it eats both plants and animals and i think it's yeah. a very simplistic simplistic because i think when i think about omnivore especially in terms of reading a book like this and i think the message that you're trying to convey is that it's more of a it's a blessing and a privilege and it's an opportunity to nourish yourself from a wide variety and i think the point you're making here is that the lack of not only quality say through chemical fertilizers and irradiation and, and, and processing and things like that. But just the lack of variety is, is contributing to some of the health problems we're seeing as a society. Yeah. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's my belief. And I can look at, uh, well, uh, just stepping aside from variety. And I, like I said, I do think variety is key at eating seasonally. I think it's very important as well. Um, but if you look at wheat, just the regular wheat we used to make bread, it had 90% more nutrition in 1940 than it does today. It had more protein. It had more minerals, every bit of it. Now (laughs) it's designed to be one, you know, tolerant to things like Roundup, but to produce a very high yield. And now all of a sudden people have gluten intolerance. Well, if you go back to like einkorn and the, the older uh, emmer and spelt and the old forms of wheat, the same people t- tend not to have a reaction to uh, the wheat, the, the gluten, the natural gluten, which is in a much smaller amount than in modern, you know, red wheat or, you know, hard winter wheat, whatever. And um, I think um, such as in that case and in many other cases, the food we're eating is, is causing inflammation. And inflammation is essentially the root of all disease. Uh, uh, some people, there's a little controversy. Some doctors will say, well, disease causes inflammation. But when you really start talking to like a cancer specialist or a heart disease specialist, he will say inflammation causes the disease. So when we're eating a modern American diet with a lot of processed foods and hybridized wheats and uh, hybridized corn, well, of course, corn is essentially hybridized from its very beginning. I mean, corn is a... a Developed uh, grass, but modern corn is so very different than corn was just a few generations ago. And you know, and corn syrup, and uh, you know, I I think uh, whether it's chemical preservatives or simply the modern uh, food or meats that are full of antibiotics and full of the bad things that the animals have been fed. Uh, We're creating inflammation, which is causing heart disease, cancer, diabetes, shortening our lifespans uh, all the way around. So, yeah, uh, variety big time, but also kind of getting to back to natural foods as, as best we can. I mean, I know everybody cannot. And I wrote the book in mind for people who cannot, as well as those like you and me who like to grow a lot of our food or go out and shoot a deer and, you know. I think the closer you can get to nature, the better off you're going to be honestly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I I think that a lot of us I and I presume a lot of people that listen to this show and, and probably follow you as well, uh, have that mindset of, of, of trying to get more natural and trying to produce their own food. and, And, and I think that, you know, gardening and raising chickens and, and animals and, and, and that 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 system is a pretty commonly addressed uh system for for the homestead you yeah. you get into in this book quite a bit about wild game that I found pretty interesting, and I had heard certain things about different less commonly consumed and hunted for trapped uh animals. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about i mean we all know you know deer we all you know can talk about catfish and trout and things like that but what are some of the maybe more even approachable, um, uh, say like you mentioned the um, the groundhog for example, which stood out to me? Um, it seems yeah, like I live, that's we probably live not huge, the
0: yeah, well, rather we have huge groundhogs. I mean, these things, I mean, really? I've to friends other places where their groundhogs are like squirrels and ours are like uh, old 10 15 pounds and stand up about two feet tall, but they're just they're. They almost don't qualify a small game, honestly. They can be so big. I remember one time (laughs) um, I had a great dog. He was a Vishla. He was a trained bird hunter. I mean, fantastic dog. And uh, he spots a groundhog uh, over maybe a couple acres away, and he took off after it. Comes back just yelping and screaming his head off in about uh, 10 minutes because this groundhog, which had teeth about this long, had latched into the side of his neck. I had to beat that thing off with a stick. So where I am, groundhogs can be quite large. They're also, they're very intelligent. They're very cautious animals. They're vegetarians. They're very clean animals. And I think if anyone really wanted to approach um, small game at learning to eat it, uh, you're probably going to start with rabbits and squirrels just because they're more plentiful. But if you have access to groundhogs, Uh, it's probably gonna be like a life changer because, um, the, the fat of a groundhog and probably the reason to call it a groundhog and they have many names to go by woodchuck and, you know, different things. Um, it's more like the fat of pork. It's not, um, intermuscular it's around the side. So you can actually take it and use it as lard. The meat itself Mm. is moderately fatty. I mean, it's, it's not greasy at all. It's um, just nice. It's really like a nice, uh, rosy red pork, like a naturally raised uh, animal. With you know, it's not completely doesn't completely taste like pork. It really tastes a lot more like rabbit, actually. And most people say rabbit tastes like chicken, so you can kind of get the idea. But it's uh, it's it's not a gamey meat at all. It's not a, a challenge to eat. It's not greasy in, in the least. And um actually pretty delicious. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, people have these odd prejudices against certain animals. I mean, I love to fish. I mean, fishing is probably my favorite pastime. And I, mean, I can't tell you how many fishermen I've been around who will catch something and just throw it away and say, that's just a trash fish. And I'm like, well, what makes that a trash fish? I decided to try all the different fish and I haven't found a fish yet that tastes bad. Uh, You go down to the coast and so many fishermen won't eat sharks or rays or skates. They just literally will kill them and throw them away. Meanwhile, if you went over to England, shark is what they make fish and chips out of. That's the dogfish Mm. shark. I mean, it's the most common shark can be absolutely delicious. There's uh, uh, the bullnose. um, I think it's a ray. Yeah, the bullnose ray. It has a filet on it that is like Kobe beef. It's dark red, and it tastes and has a texture just like the finest quality beef. And these people are just throwing them away. You take a, a, a ray or a skate, the wings, you can cut out little cylinders of them. And until recently, those were often sold as scallops in seafood markets. They were counterfeit scallops. It tastes just like scallops because the, wow. the rays and skates feed so much on shellfish sheep's head is right. another one eat so much shellfish it actually tastes like crab or scallops uh, and then we get into like the freshwater fish the only one and i kind of mentioned in the book that is a challenge for me is both in both in is uh often caught by mistake when you're fishing for catfish it's a prehistoric fish and if you Uh, fry it real quick and eat it fresh it's good Uh, otherwise it gets kind of tough and cottony kind of like carp can get if it's not properly uh, prepared but I mean all fish are delicious Uh, that I've tried so far and I've probably eaten a wider variety of fish than most folks because I mean I just you know my grandfather taught me at an early age just to wait out in the salt marshes and start picking off the shellfish catching crabs Eels. I love eel. Eel is one of my favorite foods. Most people get freaked out over eel in America for no apparent reason, just because it looks like a snake. But then again, I like to eat snakes. <laughs> so snake is a, a lean <laughs> meat. And if it's not uh, cooked, uh, overcooked, it will get really tough if it is. But if it's not overcooked, it just tastes just like a uh, chicken. <laughs> but I mean, actually probably my favorite uh, food when I think of uh, aquatic things is frog legs. Uh, my grandfather mm. was a big frog gigger. And I mean, having part a little bit of Cajun Creole heritage, I love to eat some frog legs. And again, if you I mean, I remember there was a little Chinese, huge Chinese restaurants actually in Athens, Georgia. When I was in college, it had like a 300 yard buffet. It was one of those, you know, you're guaranteed to get food poisoning if you eat there kind of places. And <laughs> I could not Stay away from it because they had frog legs on the buffet. And so many times I'd be sitting there and people thought they were chicken. I mean, the people that were dining with me would just be eating as much as I'm I'm like, that's great. Frog. (laughs) I thought this was a chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've had
1: frog legs once, but it's again, you, you talk about the prejudices that, that people have developed for really no good reason. Um, you know, and even myself, who is more open-minded than the average American, I'd say, and, and trying to to move the needle further towards more, you know, natural, local, wild foods, it's it's still a challenge for me sometimes to break through some of that conditioning that, you know, decades of marketing and messaging from the, the big food corporations to kind of accustom us to not want to take care of our own needs and, and go to them yeah. for everything. Um,
0: well, and also... Uh, it, you, you become comfortable with what you've been exposed to, you know, I was fortunate to be exposed to a large variety of foods. Um, yeah. You know, the girl I was dating just recently, uh, she did not, she was never introduced to licorice as a child. So her first taste of licorice, she thought it was disgusting. <laughs> if you were a kid given licorice and you got used to the flavor, you learned to love licorice. It's really that simple. And, um, uh, there was an episode of Joppa Pan, um, uh, one that he did with his daughter uh, probably 20 years or so ago. And they were talking about Brussels sprouts and uh, she loves Brussels sprouts. Now most you know kids will not eat Brussels sprouts. Well, at this point she's in her thirties. And he said, how did you learn to love Brussels sprouts? And she said, cause you served them to me as a kid. And he said, you know why you love Brussels sprouts? And he's kind of snickering to himself, you know, <laughs> he says, it's cause I never asked you, do you want to eat this? Mm. I just ate it and said it was good and handed it to you. And I think, uh, you know, some kids are autistic and they have texture issues. I understand that. But I think if you give kids an option, they're always going to eat chicken nuggets. <laughs> if okay. you don't give kids an option, they're going to eat what they're served because they're hungry. And I, yep. honestly, it's not a bad thing. Uh, a little uh, less privilege would go a long way in this culture. I say as someone who's not a parent, you you probably know a lot better than I do.
1: No, I think you're spot on. I mean, that's, you know, I've got... Friends who have children who are just blown away that our kids will eat, you know, Thai curries and and yeah. beans and rice and you know some Ethiopian dishes that I make and and lentils and and various things you know just normal natural healthy home cooked food yeah. and like, how in the world is that possible? It's like well because that's what we feed them. We don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Do they get chicken nuggets sometimes? Yes. Do they get pizza sometimes? Absolutely. But it's not. It's not the go to. Um, and yeah, if they're hungry, they're going to eat it. And if they eat it, they're going to learn to like it. Yeah. They're going to have their preferences, but that's, that's a big reason we're really trying to move things back this other way. Um, it's just so my kids can have some of these traditions and, and, and have a little bit more of an exposure to these things. So they're not conditioned against it. So they're, it's just going to be easier for them as they mature and become adults to be able to find ways to provide themselves and won't have the hurdles of these prejudices and, and, and fears and aversions that, you know, I I get because I, I I have them ingrained in me. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting world. I think this book is, um, I just think it's incredible. Some of the, the details and the ideas. And I think for anybody that really wants to learn more about cooking, because I think, I've said many times on this show and otherwise. I think homesteading and that concept really begins in the kitchen and works yeah. in concentric circles out. Yeah. You know, from how you how you how you get your food, how you prepare it. Um, you know, what you are eating. I think is so important, and I think that uh, even when you talk about preparedness, you know, I've worked within certain preparedness communities and 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 did some talks on food prep and things like that and and i found that you know in, in many cases people are more interested in the guns and ammo and the gear and things like that and don't realize that you know you're you those are tools you you're hoping you never have to use you're going to use your fork three times a day and you know, yeah. you know we, we need to be able to to eat and have more control over that and the and the effects on our on our health and our well-being and you know and i'm like you i I absolutely love to cook. It's, um, you know, not every guy can say that, but it's just something that, you know, I get a good day off and I spend a couple hours listening to podcasts and cooking, even if I'm just prepping for the week, it's a good day for me. Absolutely. <laughs> I just enjoy yeah. it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's another odd kind of thing. I think we kind of get that from English culture. You know, I mean, I'm part English as well. I'm not a third French, third Irish, third English, so I can talk about the English. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, in France, like in in, uh, Cordon Bleu did not even allow women in until I think Julia Child was in the first class. I mean, that's how for for centuries, whether you're talking France, Germany, Spain, uh, Italy, still very much so in Italy. uh, They kind of have that. I I think they call it the chauvinistic attitude, whatever they think. uh, A chef can only be a man. I mean, men can cook. Right. But what uh, the men often have their signature dish or something their grandmother made, so it's kind of a, an odd dichotomy. But in England, yeah. where the, you cannot say they've had, put a huge emphasis on uh, the culinary delights, as say the French may have, um, you often find uh, the opposite prejudice: it's like men shouldn't cook. You know, that's women's work. Which makes no sense whatsoever. Everybody's got to eat, and uh, everyone has a palate, and everyone can figure out what they like. And of course, there are so many English dishes I love. I mean, I, I, pasties, Yorkshire pudding, good roast beef, bubble and squeak. <laughs> you know, I, I mm. definitely do not turn up <laughs> my nose at some uh, good traditional English food. But as far as a culinary tradition, it's. What ten percent of what France has? I mean, and of course the French are way over the edge on food very often. But um,
1: I think right
0: the Italians get a nice balance. Actually, they just love to eat and drink, and uh, take such delight in the food. In fact, the, uh, what's the old saying? Uh, half the half the enjoyment of the meal is in eating it, and the other half is in criticizing the way the pasta was cooked. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> <been> like-
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that, to, to that point too. I mean, you go into any 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 restaurant uh, in this country where there's that kind of stigma that that women work in the kitchen and men don't cook, and a lot of y'all hear me. Oh, I don't like to cook or I don't cook. But then you go to any restaurant and you're going to see easily 80 percent males working the lines yeah. and 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 doing the work. And you know, it, there are great female chefs, undoubtedly, but uh, sure, many yeah. of the chefs that I've known and worked with were. We're men, and we're career, um, they're career culinary experts. One of my best friends is a executive chef, and and so I mean, it's uh, it's it's interesting, you know, when we talk about prejudices and and stereotypes uh, when it comes to food in America, it, it seems like things are pretty confused, <laughs> over here. Yeah, and a lot you of that know? did
0: come from. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned the culinary encyclopedia from 1940. How different it is uh, to today. A lot of that really came from the World Wars, a huge mm-hmm. amount, when uh, like Campbell's and other uh, Birdseye and uh, different companies began uh, making the, the, the packaged foods, the flash frozen. Um, you know, they had to feed a lot of troops, and it was, it was a miracle, essentially. I mean, I love watching these historical food shows where they talk about how canning was developed and they talk about like condensed soup. I mean, who would think, you know? That was a game changer amazingly, in 1920, um, only people who lived on a farm (laughs) and the wealthy ate soup in America. Now, this is is kind of hard to wrap your mind around, right? But the wealthy could go to a restaurant and they'd have a nice, you know, what we consider a fancy French soup, right? Like, uh, we, you know, you and I know that French onion soup costs, what, $2 to make? And you serve it for $15 a bowl. (laughs) But yeah. <laughs> nice bouillon bays or and the bullia bays again. That's trash fish. Those, those were the fish nobody wanted to eat. Making becomes the bouillon bays. But anyway, um, the the wealthy could get their uh, their turtle soup or whatever they're eating in a nice restaurant. The people who lived on the farm were using their scraps. They were still making stock out of bones. They were using their vegetable scraps. Everyone in between, because there was no refrigeration, people especially lived in cities were shopping for the day, and they didn't have leftover food. They didn't have a, a hmm. stove they could simmer a soup on for a long period of time or keep it from spoiling. And so 1920, only the country, rural, poor, and the wealthy ate soup. Campbell's changed everything when they figured out how to condense soup and put it in a little can and sell it for 10 cents. That's a miracle. I mean, that is, I mean food science, that's just incredible. And you think about the soup lines in, in the great depression. And I mean, it, it, that was a huge game changer, but on the other hand, <laughs> when people stop making that soup at home, uh, the quality of the soup just started going down and down. And uh, I mean, I honestly, I can't eat canned soup anymore. It has like an, an odd metallic salt taste to it. I just can't eat it. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah, but, you know, I, I don't either.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I love casserole, right? I love casseroles. Anything cooked into a casserole, I had to figure this out. Well, I just went back to the old cookbooks. So just went back to my grandmother's advice. Make a roux, a little butter and flour, make a roux, add some milk, add whatever vegetables. You probably want to sweat them off first, but, you know, add whatever vegetables and some chicken stock. And you've got cream of whatever soup that you can combine with whatever mm-hmm. meat whatever vegetables, and you can bake up a real casserole that uh, maybe costs a dollar to make, and it tastes so good. In fact, right now in the oven is some leftover turkey uh, from Thanksgiving with a roux and some mushrooms, so a real cream of mushroom soup, some sour cream, and some uh, sourdough bread crumbled over the top, and a little grate of uh, cheddar cheese, and it's just bubbling all uh, golden brown and delicious.
1: (laughs) I knew I was going to end up really hungry uh, after this talk. Um, Oh, but you know, uh, know, it's
0: it's, poppy seeds added chia seeds to it and turned out to be a great uh, uh, substitution. Has the same crunch, similar texture as poppy seeds Mm -hmm. and uh, chia seeds are sort of a superfood. They're absolutely full of uh, good proteins and, uh, you know, uh, the oils, you know, good stuff.
1: Omega threes and all that. Yeah. We use, we use it in our oatmeal every day and it's, I mean, I think it, think it helps and i like the flavor of it um yeah i haven't I haven't gotten my casserole game dialed in but man I'll, I'll make a soup and i um like you know i taught my wife to me now she's making great soups i'm like wow your soup game's really gotten up there hon she's making soups <laughs> that are pretty good and they might be as good as mine so yeah it's 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 fun but that comes down to you know we do have a lot of extra things around i stay save all of my my uh my veggie scraps and and save all the bones and 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 you know bits from chicken feet just anything oh, yeah. and everything that would you know is a is a byproduct of kind of doing that homestead life and yeah and then you winter comes
0: you, you take the marrow and mm. spread on bread and all oh, that's good stuff or marrow butter yeah. oh gosh yeah
1: hmm yeah i'm getting hungry um so i wanted to talk a little bit about fermentation just because it's something near and dear to my heart and see if you had any good insights you know i i'll be honest i had made sauerkraut maybe six years ago Mm. um put way too much salt in it it was just way too salty and i said uh this is this doesn't work and i and i walked away from it And then in getting ready for our first interview here earlier in the year, I was reading your herbal medicine for homesteaders, preppers and permaculture people, I believe it's called. And you mentioned sauerkraut, and the benefits of eating fermented foods. And you didn't give a very clear recipe. You just gave a guideline. And I said, okay, I can do that. And I started doing that right after I read the book. Um, And uh and I've had some other conversations about fermentation on the show and otherwise, and I've just gotten really into it. I see the, see the health benefits. What, is, like, what, what are you fermenting right now around the house? Anything you got going on?
0: Oh uh, yeah. Turnips. Actually, I, I did some turnip kraut. That's uh, and, well, I've nice. always had pepper and kombucha going because uh, my secret to uh, home fermenting is to make kombucha and your audience probably knows, but it's, uh, uh, it's made from tea just tea with sugar in it, black tea, whatever. And you get what's called a SCOBY, which stands for Symbiotic Colony of Bacteria and Yeast. Uh, people used to think it was a kind of mushroom, but it's actually just this little, you know, colony of, it's almost like a mother for vinegar if you're making natural vinegar. Mm-hmm. And you put it in there with a the tea and it just eats the sugar and it ferments the beverage, creates a yeah, maybe 1% alcohol. You know, it's not very strong. And if you let it go too long, it becomes as sour as vinegar. It can taste identical to apple cider vinegar. But it is, uh, it's alive and it's full of all kinds of probiotic bacteria and fungi. So my secret to f- fermenting anything is to do, you know, a salt brine like, or salt on the cabbage if you're doing uh, sauerkraut and add maybe a fourth cup of uh, plain kombucha. That cuts the mm. fermentation time in half. In terms of sauerkraut, you can cut the sh- salt in half. Like uh, mm. I think a standard recipe would say for a head of cabbage, use four tablespoons of plain salt. Um, you can get by on two tablespoons or less if you use uh, the, the kombucha. And it gives a, a bright, fresh uh, sweetness along with the sourness that's not overwhelmed by the salt. And so right now I've got some grated turnip roots that I'm doing just like I would sauerkraut. Made a small batch the other day, well the other month, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, it just tastes so good. I couldn't believe it. You from the turnips you've got this sweet, bitter, um, almost you know like bittersweet chocolate. Yeah, that kind of combination, but it, of course, does not taste like chocolate at all. <laughs> it tastes like turnips. And you've got the sour from the fermentation. You've got the salt. But you're combining, like, all the flavors except for pecan. You know, or you've got your umami, you know, from the fermentation. You've got the salt. You've got the sweet. You've got the sour. You've got the bitter. And so, like, a tablespoon of that is like a gourmet treat. I, I was really surprised with a fermented uh, turnip roots. I mean, you know, you always have more roots than you have tops because you know, the root solid and the top just wilts down the minute you put it in the pot. Um, right. Great way to use it. So, uh, those, I guess those are the, Oh, I've got some fermented hot sauce going. Um, I, I think I gave that recipe in the book. You, it's so easy to do this. You just make essentially a fermented salsa. Take a, in this instance, I've got tomatillos, uh, cilantro, garlic, onion, I think serrano peppers could have been jalapeno. No, it was jalapenos. Yeah. And, um, salt and pepper and cumin, Uh, just throw it in the blender, kind of liquefy it as best you can, add enough salt and a little kombucha to get it going and get it fermenting. And you can strain it off and turn it into a hot sauce or you can just use it as a uh, hot salsa. I mean, a pickled salsa, which is really good on a hamburger, by the way. And another Mm -hmm. thing uh, I love to do on a hamburger is my uh, like redneck kimchi. (laughs) Uh, My uh, cabbage and uh, some carrots and some uh, garlic and some radishes, and I just grate them all up to about the same size, put them in there, lots of onion, garlic, lots of hot pepper, ginger and turmeric. A little bit of fish sauce, a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of kombucha, to get it going, and just let it ferment off, and it stinks like the worst thing you will ever encounter in your life for about a week, <laughs> <laughs> and it just yeah. it just rounds out and it becomes like hot and sweet and funky, and I mean, just it's crazy the amount of flavor and, and on a hamburger. Wow, that is good. Or a hot dog, actually, that's my favorite hot dog topping right there. I love sauerkraut on oh, a huh. hot dog. But that uh, redneck kimchi, I'm telling you, that'll blow your mind because it's freaking hot.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I'm gonna try that. We, I just started. Uh, I wanted to make something out of some of these candy roaster squash that we grew, kind of a winter oh, okay. sweet winter squash. And so i I found a recipe for like a chutney. I basically just did a, I just did a kraut, you know, preparation with it. I just mixed. Uh, just massage salt into it, got enough brine. Um, and I didn't, it called for raisins. I didn't have raisins, which would have been good. Hindsight, maybe diced apples would have been good in it. Oh yeah. But, yeah. um, and then just added some curry powder. I think that was about it. And we just started trying that this last week and man, it's good. It's just, uh, yeah. I think some little sweet component like a raisin would, would have been really good in it. But it's great to just throw on whatever you know I, we our goal is to have something fermented on the plate every time we eat it yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, always yeah. happen yeah. i but, love you know uh, it just
0: yeah pickled radishes pickled carrots i mean if you want to get the kids to eat something mm-hmm. go with some pickled carrots because they they stay crunchy and sweet and you know you can put a little cinnamon in there um not, for me i mean i uh, i'm an allium fanatic i mean i, I eat onions mm-hmm. garlic leeks, etc just about every meal so Pickled onions are constant. And, again, those will run Mm -hmm. you out of the house the first week they're fermenting. They smell so horrible. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, (laughs) really, it can be – you can pickle anything. The only uh, tricky thing is uh, uh, mushrooms. You you want to blanch them first because – well, first of all, you can't really digest raw mushrooms. When people put raw mushrooms on their salad thinking they're eating mushrooms, it's kind of like eating – corn sometimes, you know, just kind of passes right through. You're not really getting any nutrition. Uh, But um, fermenting, mushrooms or corn, makes them much more easily digestible. And Mm I think, you know, I think for both of those, you would want to blanch them first. Uh, You can blanch the corn, cut it off the cob, and ferment it, and it's going to turn out a lot better than if you use just fresh, cut off the cob. But you have to do it with mushrooms because the mushrooms will just not ferment. They'll sit in there and rot. There's
1: too much there's too much going in there bacterially and things like that. That seems yeah. like yeah. I mean, you can pickle in I
0: mean, you can right. certainly do a vinegar pickle, but they're still going to get mushy if you don't blanch them first.
1: Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. We we started doing garlic here in the last month or two, just just garlic in a brine, um, and after about a month,
0: have you gotten blue garlic yet?
1: Yeah, some of them turn blue, some of them don't, but. That's the sulfur, sulfur compounds. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, well, I, I'm easily eating one to two to, I could eat, I could eat like a whole jar of them a day. I oh, know yeah. it's good for me. It's it kind of mellows out the heat of the garlic a little bit. Um, I'm sure when I go out and interact with the world, they're like, this guy, <laughs> this guy gets his garlic fixing, but um, yeah. definitely love that. But yeah. That, that kombucha addition I've been using like, you know, Brines from different krauts or pickles that I've got mm-hmm. as kind of a starter, but I have some kombucha that is really old that I'm basically letting just go full vinegar. Would I be able to use that as well?
0: Yeah, yeah just uh, not as much because okay. I mean, well, it does have a strong flavor the older it gets. Yeah, got so it. just I need mean, a tablespoon, uh, or you can use whey if, you, if you're making yogurt or cheese, or you can, yeah, you can absolutely use uh, leftover brine from sauerkraut, anything that's already been uh, fermented works really well now uh kefir water kefir i i find just does not for some reason uh create enough acid uh, as quickly as you need it 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 stays kind of sweet and um you can make some nice sweet pickles with it, like bread and butter pickles um Mm -hmm. you know you get your pickling spices all the clove and the cardamom and the coriander and everything and you put a lot of sugar in the brine along with vinegar um You can uh, try, I did it one time, to substitute uh, uh, kefir for the uh, the vinegar. And uh, honestly, they got a little mushy, but the flavor was really good. Really good. Mm. And that's the thing. uh, Cucumbers uh, are the most common pickle, but they're the hardest thing to ferment. They get mushy Mm. faster than anything. Always cut off the blossom end. Blossom has an enzyme that will cause the uh, cucumber to go mushy and use a starter. If you use uh, kombucha or you use some whey or a sauerkraut brine or anything, uh, you're, and, and um, kombucha works good on its own because it's made from tea. If you're using another starter, add a little bit of tea or an oak leaf mm-hmm. or a grape leaf yeah. or something that has tannin. The tannin will set those uh, cells so they don't uh, they don't get mushy.
1: I haven't tried any of those. I've read that. I've been using uh, this year. I used uh, just a little bit of carrot. I read that somewhere, yeah, and it seemed okay. to work pretty well. I didn't get anything too mushy, but um, yeah, the I, I like I like that as well. I knew you'd have a, a secret somewhere in there. That kombucha is a pretty cool idea. I've I've made kombucha many times. This last batch, I do a continuous batch. I don't know if you yeah, just
0: Yeah,
1: at a certain point, it just seems like it doesn't want to perform the same way, but I figured, you know what, I'll just make some really healthy vinegar. So I've got two, probably two gallons of vinegar brewing in there right now. So
0: that's good stuff. Uh, Another thing that is great is, you know, I mean, fermentation originated as a way of preserving foods. Uh, We think of Mm -hmm. it more as, well, now we think of health, but that really flavor, you know, we love those uh, pickled flavors, but uh, it's a great way using that brine uh, to preserve meat and eggs as well. Uh, You can't ferment meats or anything, but, well, you can, but you probably don't want to, (laughs) but you can take a good brine and uh, throw some sausage in there. Uh, I think the uh, brine from pickled hot peppers and garlic is perfect for pickling uh, sausages in. They pick up all that spicy, hot, garlicky flavor, and they're delicious. And, I mean, again, it's not something people eat a lot these days, but my you know my grandfather loved pickled sausages, pickled pigs feet, pickled uh, eggs, spoiled eggs. So I grew up eating them. and I think they're great. We even had, we used to have a company here in North Carolina called Penrose, which made the best pickled sausages. and they were bought out by Conagra, mysteriously burned to the ground. I think maybe they didn't want the competition, but uh, I, I figured out how to make my own uh, substitute. I just use uh, smoked beef sausage. And pickle it in a brine with hot peppers and garlic. And I'll throw in some extra cayenne and some salt and just get that flavor right. And uh, (laughs) the first time, I I had just gotten my dog, my little border collie. He's been with me about 14 years now. And I I found him. He had been abandoned out in the woods, you know. And I brought him in. And he's eating dog food. And he's like, yeah, this is okay. I guess it's all right here. I'm eating a pickled sausage. And he's like, give me some, give me some. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to hate this. You know, this is the end. This, he won't beg for food again. I gave him a little <laughs> bit of that sausage. His eyes got like the size of saucers. And he starts jumping up on my chest trying to take the sausage away from me. <laughs> and since then, that dog has been absolutely hooked on everything dogs are not supposed to eat, including garlic and onions, hot peppers, vinegar, black pepper. And uh, I guess he's about 16 now, so it doesn't seem to have done him any harm.
1: Seems like it's working. Uh, yeah, I guess that goes back to if you if you feed it to them and expose it to them, maybe they'll they'll find an affinity for it. That's funny. Well, yeah, this has definitely definitely made me hungry. I'm about ready to go get some lunch and me and um, got some other things going on later today. I think we got a parade to go to and things like really that. Nice. And, yeah. um, but Yeah. I really appreciate you you coming back on the show. It's good to catch up a little bit and. And uh, this book, I think, is fantastic. Definitely looking forward to this next one. That sounds really interesting. Is it? Is it out yet? Has it been released? The oh yeah, the firm book. book? Or does yeah, that come?
0: yeah I'll, I'll go and see, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll email you an, an ebook so you can check it out. And it's uh, it's, oh, cool. it's, it's a really interesting book. I, I think uh, it, people will be really surprised about firms. But uh, yeah, yeah, and that's. I need to have you on my show sometime too. Let's not forget about that. Next time uh, you got something you want to talk about, just uh, uh, drop me a line and we'll get you on my show.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, That reminds me, let's talk a little bit about what you've got going on, where people can find you on the web and find your books. So people know kind of where to go and if they want to connect and and hear more from you.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, Well, the, URL, I guess, is uh, uh, J U D S O N C A R R O L L J-U-D-S-O-N-C-A-R-R-O-L-L.com. That'll take you to my Substack newsletter, and it's free. You can get my free Substack newsletter every week. Um, I've got a podcast, Southern Appalachian Herbs Podcast, uh, doing another podcast for uh, Prepper Broadcasting Network, and that's uh, Herbal Medicine for Preppers. So you can get the long format or the short format going to either one. the blog is Southern Appalachian Herbs at uh, blogspot.blogspot.com. However, those uh, Google blogs work, you know, and uh, the books are all available on Amazon in print or Kindle or whatever. Um, also published through Smashwords. So any electronic format you like, you can find it out there. Or if you just want a PDF, uh, you can email me and uh, you can buy the PDF for me. Um, and, A little more money goes in my pocket, so I never mind that. So I'm uh, I'm all over the place. Uh, Just look for Southern Appalachian herbs or Judson Carroll. And uh, the only confusion is there's another Judson Carroll that uh, wrote a lot about um, the history of the Masonic Order, but uh, he died 100 years ago. So as long as you don't confuse him with me, we're good. (laughs)
1: well and i'll be sure to put links in the show notes so folks can easily find you and and and, uh catch up with you and i definitely recommend them to to follow you you're one of the smartest guys i know and i think uh, more people need to to be into what you've got going on and hear the stories you have to tell and
0: i'd give you a big ditto on that one and uh really do appreciate all you do as well and uh you know uh all my books are a little opinionated uh (laughs) uh You Get a little humor in there. Uh, I'm sure I f- offend a lot of people, uh, but I think probably the most offensive thing in in the Omnivore's Guide to Cooking is my opinions on barbecue, because <laughs> I would <laughs> not be welcome in uh, Kansas City.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? If I've heard, if you're not if you're not offending somebody, then you're probably not trying hard enough. So yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> Well, thanks again, Judson. I look forward to hopefully uh, talking again soon and, um, and looking forward to uh, finishing this book and moving on to the next one.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. Anytime, anytime.
1: All right. That was my conversation with Judson Carroll. It's always great to catch up with Judson and talk with him. I feel like I could probably talk to him about just, just about anything and and have a good time. Definitely a great guy. And uh, passionate about food as I am. And so hopefully some of that passion and knowledge rubbed off on you. And hopefully you leave this conversation a little bit hungrier and a little more um, a little more open-minded and maybe looking to try some new things and and get back into cooking if you're not already into it. I do think that the ability to cook is one of the most important, if not the most important skills that you can have and shouldn't be overlooked. I definitely recommend checking out his recent book. I will leave links in the show notes to to his website, his blogs, his podcast, as well as his book, uh, the most recent book, uh, which is a fantastic cookbook. Definitely not your typical pictures and recipes and bullet points, which I actually appreciate. It is a little bit different in format, but it is absolutely loaded with fantastic information. We'll be sure to inspire you and open your eyes. So... Check that out. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has been following along the podcast on my homesteading journey and the conversations that I've been having. Um, please do um, follow or subscribe the podcast so that you won't miss an episode as I put them out and appreciate any shares that you can do. Sharing the podcast goes a long way for sure in, uh, in, in getting the podcast to more people, obviously. And um, ratings and reviews. I always love to see those. So thank you for those. If anybody has any questions or comments or suggestions for a topic or a guest, I'm always welcome to to hear those. And I appreciate the emails I have received lately. So you can reach me uh, at jason at plansandprovisions.com. And as far as social media, I'm most active on Instagram at plansandprovisions. So check me out there as well. And that, folks, is going to do it for this week's episode. I look forward to sharing with you on the next episode. We've got some great things coming down the line. So um, until then, folks, this is Jason signing off, reminding you to do something today to improve your tomorrow.
0: Thank you for listening to the Plans and Provisions podcast. If you would like to stay up to date with everything happening around the homestead, head on over to the website at plansandprovisions.com.